Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indiebizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Andrew Warner, founder of Mixergy, an online interview site where he interviews probably thousands of entrepreneurs about their business. We're kind of doing a, a, a turn-the-table sort of interview, and we're going to get into his passion for the upstart. And uh, Andrew, thank you for joining me today. And we're going to ju- jump uh, right into our first question about, uh, about your first job. What was your first meaningful job, and how would it influence your future career? first meaningful one, I would actually say shoveling snow in Jamaica Estates, New York. <laughs> Every time it it snowed, I thought, boy, I hope that schools are closed. I hope that this is so much snow that the, that the people who live in my neighborhood won't be able to shovel their own snow. And I can go out there and make as much money as I have the energy to make. And man, I would have been there 24 hours a day if I could have, if my parents were okay with it. And if strangers would have been okay with a 10-year-old knocking on their door at about 1 a.m., I would have been okay with that. I would have worked through what it. What was it about that? I mean, what made you so passionate about, uh, about you know, wanting to do that? Well, it was actual cash in my pocket, and I would get something like 20 bucks for shoveling somebody's uh, walkway and shoveling their garage, and that's a ton of money. Maybe sometimes I'd have the guts to ask for even 30 if it was a big house. And Jamaica Estates in New York has huge houses, lots of uh, space that needs to be shoveled. And there was just big potential. And I also knew that if I could just suck it up and not be nervous, not be scared, I can... I could knock on a door and actually make money come my way. And if I if I got a no, I could practice for the next one. It was just all within my control. Great, great, great. So uh, let's fast forward a little bit uh, mm-hmm. to Mixergy. Tell us first a little bit about your background. I know you had a successful business prior to Mixergy. Um, so tell us about that a little bit and why you sold. And then you know take us into the beginnings of, of, of Mixergy. Sure. I had a business that mainly did online greeting cards. We earned revenue by uh, offering lead-based advertising within the greeting card process. And I sold the last piece of it, the last significant piece of it in 2003. Took a long time off to just think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And then I said, hey, you know, the people who I admired were guys like Dale Carnegie who – interviewed and talked with actually Dale Carnegie didn't so much interview as just had uh, business people come into his his classes in Midtown New York to learn how to give speeches and to learn how to relate better to people and he took all of what he learned from watching them grow and all of what he learned from researching how to win friends and influence people the topic of his book and he put it in this book that changed my life years later I said I want to do the same thing for business and that's the idea behind Mixergy entrepreneurs come to teach how they built their businesses and the rest of us learn from them great 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 so tell us about uh you know, you took some time off, and then you decided to start uh, Mixergy. Um, tell us about getting it going. Was it just you? Did you have anybody else uh, to help you out to get it going? Tell us about that. It was just me, and then I started hiring developers, and I started doing all kinds of stuff. Well, and it got out of control, and I had to close it down and start over again. The idea initially was, hey, why don't we get these events together where people get to talk to each other, where we meet entrepreneurs and business people 
in person and we learn from them and then we take all that and synthesize it. And then I said, well, if we're going to do it in person, I've got to have a better invitation system than Evite. And since none exists, I've got to create my own. And then I hired developers to create my invitation system and design it. And before I knew it, I was in the invitation system business. And that's not at all what I wanted to do. That's not what Dale Carnegie was in. He wasn't creating invitations. That's not what I admired as a kid. That's not where I saw myself at this stage of my life. So I went on camera and I said, I failed. I mean, to everyone who was in my audience, everyone who was on my website just saw this I failed video that said, look, I don't know how I got here, but this isn't where I wanted to be. And what I'm going to do is go back to what I wanted to do originally and learn how to do it better, and I'll learn in public. I'm going to bring the best entrepreneurs that I can find, the best ones who are out there, and those are really the tech entrepreneurs today. Have them come on to teach you, the audience, and me, the interviewer, how they built their businesses, and I'm going to learn from them, and I'm going to also pass that information on to others. And that's the path that I've been on. And as a result, we've got hundreds of thousands of people who um, who come to the website, who learn from these entrepreneurs, who then come back very often later and they say, now it's my turn to do an interview and teach you what teach your audience what I did as a result of listening to all these great entrepreneurs. So how big was your audience at the time that you, you, know, you go on camera and you say that you failed? Uh, how many people did you have at that time? And then building it back up again, how did you sort of reinvent yourself? At the time, it wasn't so much a web-based business. It was still about events. And we'd get something like 100 to 200 people coming to each of my weekly events. Okay. And I, don't, I didn't even have an analytics program on my website to tell me how many people were coming to the site. What I was tracking was how many invitations were sent, which really is an indication of how far away from uh, what I wanted to be I'd gone, that that was what I was tracking instead of um, – how many people were improving based on what I was doing or whether I was even producing what I had in mind. Great, great, great. So you decide to, to turn back and really focus back on, uh, on the interview. Um, right. Now, I've watched many of your interviews. I really enjoy them. I think they're fantastic. Um, so anybody who, you know, who enjoys this show, if you haven't heard of Mixer G, definitely go, uh, go check out Mixer G and, and listen to uh, Andrew's interviews because they're really, really great. Um, tell us, is there a particular kind of philosophy or, uh, behind your interviews uh, when you're interviewing something? Is there, is there something that you're really driving at with entrepreneurs? And that yeah, kind of I want to get who they really are. You know, a while back, I interviewed an entrepreneur and we lost our connection. In that middle part, I got emails from people saying, Andrew, this was when we were doing it live, why didn't you rip into this guy for spamming? Why didn't you say that he was wrong to spam? Why didn't you call him out on spamming? If he, when he comes back, if he comes back for the second half of the interview, you better call him out and let him know that what he did was wrong. And I said, no way. That's not what we're about. We're not about imposing our ideas on the, on the speakers. We're about putting aside our ideas for what's right and wrong, putting aside our vision for what really works online and not, and really just listening to how this entrepreneur did it. Because if we can learn from him and we can bring back some of his best ideas or the ones at least that, that are most applicable to us, but if we shut that person out, then we don't hear that maybe our competitors are spamming and that's why they're getting away with certain things. And if we're competing with them and not understanding that they might be doing it, we're missing an opportunity to, to, uh, to figure out how they're growing and how we can react to it. If we're not listening to people be aggressive, then we're missing out on an understanding that sometimes you have to be aggressive in business or sometimes some people have to be aggressive. You want to understand how business is the way it is. I'm not here to give you the, uh, the, the unicorn and rainbow story. I'm here to give you the truth as it happens. Great, great. 
So what is your uh, marketing strategy for Mix- Mixergy? I mean, how, do you, uh, how did you go about, when you reinvented yourself, how did you go about growing your audience? Uh, what is your approach to growing your business? The best thing that's worked for me is, interview pe- is interviewing people who have big audiences themselves. And in fact, today, most business people in the tech space have audiences. You know, there was a day when only celebrities had audiences and different TV shows would buy to have them on because they wanted their audiences to come watch. That's the whole basis of Letterman and Leno. They want the big celebrities who have big followers to have to come on so their followers would come on. Today in in our world, in the business world, many entrepreneurs, many business people have followings. So if I interview them, their followers are going to come to the site and then Maybe they'll come back to watch a following interview and a one after that and a one after that, and that's been the marketing plan. And now the idea is if they come in for one, how do I let them know about the others and how do I get them to stay involved so that they find out about another one in the future that they'll like? Great, great. So can you tell us how big is Mixergy now? Can you, what can you tell us in terms of uh, how, many, how much traffic you get or anything like that? The way that I measure Mixergy is how many interviews do we do, and we're doing one a day. Every, and I say we because now I've got people who are helping me out. Every day I do an interview, and I, uh, and I, and that's the way that I measure it. Can I keep doing these interviews? Can I keep bringing great entrepreneurs on? But as far as traffic, each interview gets. I don't know what the numbers are because they're all over the place. You know, you got some people who are watching on iTunes, some people are watching on different places, some people who are uh, reading just the transcripts. I don't know. I, I tell um, I tell each entrepreneur that they're going to get exposed to 100,000 people if they come to do an interview. Mm-hmm. Frankly, actually, it's been a long time since an entrepreneur said how many people are going to be watching. <laughs> what they know is that their friends are watching and that's why they want to come on. I see. That the people they admire are watching. Great, great. Is Mixergy a profitable business? Is this uh, something that you do? Uh, uh, you know, I, I know that you really enjoy doing it, but is this uh, really a sustainable kind of entity? Yeah, it's profitable. For the beginning, I thought, why don't I spend money? And if I do, and I put events together, for example, I should be the one spending money on them because it's the stage of my life where I want to where I want to give people where I want them to be influenced and, uh, and grow and give back to others, you know, and just keep passing it forward. Um, and so I would rent an, uh, an event space and I would pay for the drinks and I would pay to have appetizers come on and come out. And people left with this understanding that, that it wasn't about a message of any kind. It was about, you know, freeloading and, you know, having a good time. And so I started charging for the events. Then when I started doing the interviews, I said, I shouldn't run advertising. I shouldn't sell anything because this is about me and my speakers giving back. And I found that people didn't take it very seriously. So I started running some ads. And what I found was when I ran ads, it was easier to get different entrepreneurs to take the show uh, uh, seriously. It was easier to get people who are watching to say, hey, this isn't just some some guy's personal blog, but it's a real business. And they took it more seriously. Um, and the more that I made it into more of a business, the more people took it seriously around me. And also, frankly, kicked off revenue that I said, well, I've got to do stuff with this revenue. You know, I'm not looking to bank money from it. So I started hiring an editor to edit my interviews. Um, I'm now working with researchers who help me do research on my guests. I've now got someone who's helping me post the, uh, do the blog posts that go, uh, along with each interview. It's a huge help. It helps the business grow. It helps people take it seriously. 
Great, great. How long was it before, you know, you reinvent yourself. How long was it before you uh, started to become profitable? Was there a particular moment, that sort of aha moment? The, where co- you- the costs were so little that as soon as I sold an ad, I was profitable. I mean, we're talking about a WordPress blog and video hosting, and that's about it. Now, electricity for my laptop. We're talking about really, really inexpensive to get up and running. Great, great. I didn't even get a good mic. I bought the crappiest little mic that I could. In fact, one that came with my computer. And then when I got a hum from that mic and it was too much trouble to edit it, and I was editing using free software, something called Audible, uh, or Audacity, Audacity. Um, Yeah, Audacity. That's when I bought uh, a mic, the Blue Snowball, that cost me like 75 bucks, and that was the big investment. So we're talking about really cheap to get started. Great, great. So why are you so passionate about business and entrepreneurship? Partially because so many people are not. When I was in school and tried to sell candy to other students, the teachers quickly shut me down with this passion because they thought that I was the devil for trying to profit off other students. And I have talked to other entrepreneurs in the hundreds of interviews that I've done who've had similar experiences. Guys who are creative, who who want to do good in the world through entrepreneurship who were shut down by people who thought that they were just trying to uh, trying to capitalize and profit, well, those in a bad way. They thought that they were trying to take advantage of other people. Mm-hmm. And so much of the world is that way. They think that business people are evil. They think that entrepreneurship is uh, for dreamers. And I want to show the opposite point of view. I want to say, hey, business is not evil. When you do well, you leave something good in the world for your customers, for the employees who work with you, for the partners who depend on you for revenue. Um, And that's the idea here, to just show that that's true. And that's part of it. The other part is business is, it's it's a dream factory. I mean, dream factory in the sense that you could, I remember back in the old Bradford and Reed days, back in the company that I said mainly did greeting cards, we had an idea for something like, the world's biggest jackpot ever. And we were able to actually put it together, you know, billion dollar jackpot. Who do we assemble who's going to ensure the billion dollar jackpot in case somebody wins? Boom, we get it. Where do we get the servers for it? Well, we've got that. Where do we get this for it? And you bring all the elements together to take this idea that was just in your head and bring it to life. And there from the factory, which is the business, you've, cr- you've taken a dream and you've brought it to life. And then, of course, I like profits too. People I think in this space, forget the profits are fun and profits are helpful. You get profits, you're able to do whatever you want, you know? Mm -hmm. And I mean that from the point of view of having an idea and then use those profits to fund that idea, but also from the point of view of saying, hey, what about me and my own personal life? I remember saying, I want to take some time off and went to Venice Beach, California and just hung out. You know, I just read books and read newspapers and went out and just dated every day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I couldn't have done that if I didn't have profits you know profits are golden they let you live the dream life great 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 so um let's let's turn back to that a little bit you said you you took some time off i I wanted to ask you about that um you know you sorry um You know, you said you sort of had, you, you burned out, you took a break. It is, do you think burnout is inevitable for an entrepreneur? Is there a way that they can avoid it? Should we avoid it? What, what are your thoughts on that? I was talking to Tim Ferriss and I said, why, why did you write a book? In fact, never mind why you wrote a book. Why should my entrepreneur audience and my entrepreneur friends read a book on health from you, on working out? See, we have these passions for building businesses, not for building our bodies. And he said, look, 
if your business is in trouble and that's all you've got, your whole life is in trouble. Think about what that does to you mentally. Think about the confidence that, that well, not the confidence that you have. Think about how it, it shoots a hole through your confidence to have everything in your life be in trouble. Well, imagine if you had another aspect of your life, exercise. And maybe when your business was doing pretty bad, because you know all businesses at times do bad, at that point, you exert more energy on something that you have full control over, your workout, and you do better than you've ever done before, maybe by lifting more weights than you did before, by running further, and so on. Think about the confidence that that builds up in you and how it sets you up for a great day at work. That's exactly what happened to me. Uh, I burned out, and then to get back, I started taking up running. And what I found was when I ran and I had a good run further than I ever did before, I'd walk into work with this sense of confidence like I could take on anything at work. And that helped a lot. And that's, that's what I did. And I think that entrepreneurs and all business people and everyone needs to have the extra aspect of their lives. So when one thing goes bad, you have another thing that you can count on to pick you up there. Great, great, great. Um, in your last business, you were in business with your brother. Um, and I, I don't know if you have uh, business partners with Mixergy, but I'm curious about uh, sort of about that relationship. You know, what challenges does it present to... Uh, you know, be in business with another person, especially, you know, with your own brother and whatnot. How did you solve, uh, resolve disagreements? Tell us a little bit about that. We had a great relationship. I can't think of one time that I felt like we were cheating each other or I felt like there was a problem there. I felt, but which isn't to say we weren't confrontational. We had this, these, these positions almost that we naturally took on and that also helped us in our relationship. So for example, I'm I'm such a big optimist. I think everything's going to work out and everything's going to be great. And he likes to have deep rational thought for everything. And so my first instinct is to say, "Yes, it'll work." His first in- instinct is to say, "No, until you prove it to me." <laughs> and so we get into these, I'd come up with an idea for I don't know what uh for anything, I'd come up with this idea, like let's say hiring um, hiring someone new, and he'd say, "Well, I don't think we really need it." And I'd say, "Well, look, if we hired this new person, we could make more revenue." And he'd instinctively battle back and say, "Yeah, we can make more revenue, but think about how we have to pay for their payroll taxes, how we have to get unemployment insurance, how we have a risk of a new person in the office, how we have the expenses, and so on." And we just go back and forth until one of us proved the other, uh, proved that we were right to the other. And he's so logical that. It's easy to to deal with. There weren't any like screaming fights because he wasn't illogical. He was just he was almost super logical. That if you were someone who who hated logic, you just couldn't deal with it because you'd want him to just get carried away sometimes. But it helps to have that counterbalance. And I and sometimes in relationships, when one person takes a stand in one direction, the other person instinctively takes the other side. That um, you know and. You start to kind of count on each other for that, for one person to just be the no, the other person to be the yes, and for, through that conflict to hash it out. With us, it was kind of natural that we took those positions. Was one person um, more in the leadership role, or did you guys sort of co-manage the business together as equals? Tell us about that a little bit. We each had the, our areas that we were in charge of and trusted the other person. So I didn't doubt when he said, let's get this piece of hardware, even though it costs a million dollars or this whatever and he didn't doubt when i said we should buy a million dollars worth of advertising somewhere else we just trusted that we each knew um 
within bounds, within boundaries. And it would have helped me actually to have a co-founder at Mixergy in the early days when I was going in the wrong direction, to have somebody who says, wait, you told me you want to go this one direction. Now you're, you realize you're about to go into the invitation business. Well, justify it to me. Why do you think we should be there? And then once I'm there and I'm in trouble to say, hey, this is why you said you wanted to be in that business. Is that really true? Or are you just sticking with it because you feel obligated? You know, right. It helps. It helps to have someone like that. Great. So I guess on the flip side, um, in, in terms of now being in business for yourself, um, you know, you, you mentioned maybe some of the downside of not having a, a co-founder. Can you, can you talk about maybe the upside, some of the advantages of that as well? The advantage of having, of having no co-founder, in my mind, is actually a bad thing for the business. Because not having a co-founder means that this could be my vision. It could be me trying to say, this is what I'd like to add to the world. And there's no one there to, to change it. There's no one there to say, hey, there's another vision here. There's an, justify it financially and so on. Um, but that hurts a business. I think that Mixergy would have done better if, uh, as a business anyway if I had somebody to say along the way at every point, justify it. Why are we doing this? Where are we going to see the results here? Let's battle back. And, uh, and that would have forced me too to say to that other person, what about you? How, do you? how do we make sure that what you're doing is bringing in revenues or bringing in business or hitting our goals in some way? And I, I tend to think that it's better to have a co-founder. Maybe that's just because in my experience, I had a good co-founder. Others might have had bad co-founders, and so their view is uh, is different from mine. But I, I really liked it. I thought there was a lot of value to it. And And by the way, I actually don't think that having someone who comes on as an employee later on and isn't a 50-50 shareholder, I don't think it's the same. I know... Michael, I think when we started, had less than 50% because I put in the money into the original business. I was older and I had the money to put in. But it was important to me for us to get to 50-50 so that he felt as committed. You know, I was interviewing James Altucher and I, I said, James, as soon as you had your business idea, you gave 50% of this business to thestreet.com. Why did you give them that such a big share? Why not give them 20 and let them earn their way to 50? And he said, if they don't have 50%, they don't have enough of an interest in growing the business. They don't have enough of a vested um, interest in in helping you out. You're now just a lottery ticket in a way to them. You know, go. I don't have the reason to put money into you and have you grow or put more of my resources into you because I only own 20%. I'm hoping that my 20% becomes a big windfall when you figure it out, but go figure it out. Something about that 50-50 that helps a lot. And um. That's that's at least been in my in my experience. I think there are other clever ways to to work around it, but fifty fifty is very powerful. No, that that's very very interesting. Th- thank you. It gives me some food for thought. Um, so, what's one of the uh, the biggest lessons you've learned just as a businessman, and how are you applying that in what you're doing now? The thing I should have done right from the start, as soon as I started any business, was gone and found people who I could turn to for advice. Especially back when I was right out of college, people would have been advisors in a heartbeat because they want to help out young people who are starting out in business with their first companies. I should have done that right away. Um, I see that a lot of the people who I interview have great advisors who help them on and 
I'm fortunate now in doing all my interviews that I have people who I can call on and say, I'm thinking through this issue. Can you help me out? I'm trying to figure out what to do in this place over here. Can you help me think it through? Like I'll tell you, uh, I'll give you one example. Um, I was, tr- we're still trying to figure out courses. The idea is that I interviewed hundreds of entrepreneurs. How about bringing some of them back and saying, teach a course. Te- don't just tell us how you did it. Teach us how we can do it too. And they're going well, but I think we can do so much more with them. And the way that I want to do more is by surveying the audience throughout, finding out beforehand what kind of courses they want. Do they want Do they want to figure out how to increase their sales? Do they want to figure out how to hire people? Do they want to figure out how to build better landing pages? Whatever it is, I want to know ahead of time. And then as I, I'm building the course for them with these great entrepreneurs, I want to know what specifically did do do my customers want out of those courses? What topics, what questions, what direction do they want? Um, and afterwards, I want to know whether we hit it so that we can improve the next time and the next time after that. Anyway, that's a lot of surveying, a lot of customer feedback. I said, I can't do it. I'm trying. I can't do it well enough. I called Ramit Sethi up. He's a guy who's phenomenal at customer research. Um, and he spent an hour on the phone with me just coaching me through. And there was a level of trust there so that we can share numbers with each other and have him help me figure it out. And that was a huge help. And I, I wish that earlier in my career I'd done that. And I think there's always room to do more and more of it. Great, great. So what is the long-term vision for Mixergy? Do you want to just continue to grow this? You're, you said you're doing one interview a day. You mentioned maybe having more seminar types of uh, things. Tell us a little bit more about the long-term vision and goal and, and how you want it to grow over the years. You know, we've got CNN right out here. I walk out and I see a trial of a mother who killed her daughter. I walk out again and I see someone talking about why Barack Obama is a jerk. I walk out again into into the kitchen and I see a story about some kid who found a great looking penny or a, a video, believe it or not, on CNN of a cat that they found on YouTube. This is what the world wants. The world loves this stuff. Most people would gravitate to this and want more of this kind of stuff. There's a handful of people who are really ambitious who say, you know, I want to leave my mark on the world. I've got this thing in me that's not enough for me to just live and breathe in this planet, but I want to leave my mark on it. And I don't just want to see what other people have done with their lives on TV. I don't want to be in the audience. I want to be a participant in the arena. I want to experience it. I'm willing to get knocked around a little bit in exchange for the opportunity to be in the arena and actually figure things out and also leave my my knocks and my marks and have and be in the game and have fun. I want to help those people. I want to help them by bringing other people in the arena, other entrepreneurs. I think entrepreneurship is the best arena to be in. It's creative. It's profitable. It lets you leave a legacy. It's there's so much to it, uh, but it's also very dangerous. You know, you see people who lose their families or lose their houses for for mistakes in business that could often be avoided. I want to help them avoid those mistakes, and I want to help them find those opportunities by saying, "I don't know it all." There's no one person who knows it all, but if I bring the most admired, the most accomplished, the most proven entrepreneurs on to talk about how they did it and teach you, you can do it. And that's the idea here, to bring them out and have them teach for an audience of rapidly ambitious people who want to leave their marks on the world, who want to be in the arena. Very, very freaking small group of people. 
but those people are so important to this planet. These are the people who really make the planet go. Everyone else is just going along for the ride. These are the people who are making this planet go. Great, great. And and tell us a little bit more about that that sort of, you know, you're targeting basically a niche audience and a, a, a lot of times, you know, we hear as entrepreneurs, oh, you got to go wider or you got to target a very niche kind of audience. It sounds like you're of the mind that you really got to find out who your audience is and just go after them. Is that what what are your thoughts on that? That's I get that too because even though I talk to entrepreneurs about entrepreneurship, my focus is really internet entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. I think Opening up a coffee shop could be fun, but really, it's – I don't get it. I don't get it because it's really hard to grow big. There's a lot of competition. You can't adjust quickly. There's so much about it that just doesn't draw me in. Meanwhile, internet entrepreneurship, you can do what I did, start it for pennies. You can reach millions of people around the world. You can grow quickly. You can adjust even faster. There's so much to it that I love, and so I, I focus on that. But people will sometimes ask me to interview coffee shop entrepreneurs. They'll ask me to interview um, uh, small business people that are offline, brick and mortar, one way or the other. I don't even I don't even know them or come into contact with them much. So I'm not I'm not thinking of many great examples. I say I got to focus. You know, there's too much for us to do here that I I can't start going off and and dealing with every bit of entrepreneurship out there. Occasionally, I'll go and bring those people in so that we can copy ideas from them or learn from them and bring those ideas to our world, but i got to stay in our world. And this is a great world to be in. Great world to be in. No, definitely. You mentioned something interesting, the low cost of entry to you know, the online world and online business. Um, do you think that makes it harder to succeed uh, in the online space? Harder than what? Harder than being a coffee shop owner and competing with both the old mom and pop stores and Starbucks and whoever wants to like go and compete with Starbucks by creating their own chain. Those, uh, I think there was a Juan Baldez coffee shop in in the middle of New York when I left it. And last time I was in L.A., there was a coffee bean and tea leaf. It felt like on every block. So what? Go compete with them. That's tough. Go compete with television studios. Think about how tough that is. I mean, these guys are entrenched. These guys are established. This is a world right now where we're still, the winners are still new, where everything is still new. I say that, that Mixergy is home of the ambitious upstart. People think that I'm just kind of having a play on the word startup, but it's not. It's upstarts. When I talked to uh, um, Andrew Mason on Mixergy about how he built Groupon, he didn't say, my dad ran Groupon and my brother didn't want to run it and so I ran it and I doubled its sales. He didn't say that. He said, it's a brand new idea. You know, I just kind of figured it out. This is, he's an upstart. You know, he's not someone who's, who's running a business that was passed down. And most of the world outside of tech, outside of the internet space, everyone – not everyone, but a lot of people are entrenched. You walk down Manhattan and it's inspiring to see all the big names on the buildings, but you recognize that their fathers or mothers were in the space. Often it's their fathers and it was passed down to them and then from them on and so on. You don't see that in the internet space. Do you ever have uh, a desire to maybe uh, just you know do it yourself, get out there and, and start your own I'm doing it myself. I hear it? that a lot from people and the idea that if I'm doing Mixergy, I'm not really doing a business. It's it's bullshit. Am I allowed to curse here? Sure. I'm going to do it because you know what? 
Steve Forbes, actually forget Steve Forbes, he's no upstart. He's like a he's the third Forbes in a generation of Forbes. But his father was a really impressive entrepreneur, um, Malcolm Forbes. Malcolm Forbes not only was chronicling the successful people of his day, not only was he bringing out the best of them and saying, we're going to leave our mark on the world together. You know, by the way, one of the things that he used to do when he ran Forbes magazine was he would do these stunts. Like he'd go in a, he, in a hot air balloon from one end of the country to the other or some nonsense like that. And then he'd have all these people around him who were driving underneath and making sure that he was on track and making sure that his balloon was the best in the world. And reporters would say, hey, you're cheating. And he said, no, I'm not cheating. He said, you have money, more money than anyone else, and that's why you can do it. He said, that's not cheating. That's me telling you that when you have money and when you build a successful business, the fruits of it enable you to do things that you can't do without it. And I'm leaving my mark on the world by doing that. And that's just as much a statement the way that I'm going in this hot air balloon as building up my magazine. That's what he said. Well, anyway, he made those statements. He left that legacy. And he also built a nice fortune for himself in the profit in the process. There's why if you're if you're in this space behind the mic talking to someone you're not you shouldn't consider yourself in this space and that goes for me that goes for you that goes for anybody who's in the space believe me throughout the time that um that michael arrington was was uh running TechCrunch as an independent company he didn't wake up in the morning saying i'm not really in business he's in business he's in business we're in business we're all in there Absolutely. Great. Thank you. Um, you mentioned a little, uh, a little while ago some of the mistakes. Let that, me back up a second. Yeah, Sorry, please. I've got to put on that because I've got to come back on that because there is this sense that some people have a pass and are really in business and not. And we, we can – it's okay for the people who have these special passes to pretend that they have um, special privileges because as entrepreneurs, you want to feel really super confident. But it's not okay for us who don't have that to feel – to feel like we're not really in the game. I'll give you an example. Let me clarify what I'm saying. If you have venture capital, there's a sense that you really are in business and the person who's not in venture, who doesn't have venture capital is not really in business. He's just, you know, playing at a lifestyle game. No, if you're in business, you're in business. In some cases, people who have profits like to think that they're really in business and people who don't have profits aren't really in business. No, you're both in business as long as you're in business that profit isn't a distinction. You, some companies go for a long time without making a profit and then they make a freaking killing. We are in it. So whatever it is that's that little distinction that's buzzing around in our audience's heads right now, get rid of it. You're in business whether it's um, whether it's profitable or not, whether it's venture-backed or not, whether it's uh, a content company or not, whether it's a lifestyle play or not, you're in business. Great, great. Don't edit that out. Keep that message in. That's important for people to take in. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, and 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 this kind of brings up a, an interesting topic in terms of uh, you know it reminds me you, you know you're so passionate about this um, and, and you have a, a certain kind of you know leadership. You're inspiring me uh, you know to in, in everything that you do. Um, tell us a little bit about leadership. What does leadership mean to you uh, for yourself? And, and then also a little bit about what you see in all the people that you interview as well. You know, there are times when in the middle of the night, I might be one of the few entrepreneurs who, who actually is willing to admit this, but I think it's important to admit it. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and I'll say, what the hell was I doing? Why did I say that I was going to be in Mixergy for the rest of my life and I was committed all in to making this thing work? What if I change my mind next year? Why did I do that? There are times when I say, why am I not making 
more money so that I could afford to live this great lifestyle. What's wrong with me? There are times when I say, screw it. I can really cheat everybody in my system. I've got this big email list. I can just send them ad after ad and do nothing but that because I need to take care of like this need to make some money so I could live this great life and not worry about you know going out of business tomorrow. That's Let's call it meadership, you know, like me worrying about me and only me. And it works. I think when I think of leadership, I think of that second thought that comes in my head when I worry. And that's, what's it all about? What's it for? And it's about doing things like like, um, Malcolm Forbes did. He took those risks. He left that legacy and he changed people's lives, mine included, and so many other people. And I think when we take that step away and we say there's something bigger worth taking this personal risk for, it's often a leadership question and it's a, and it drives us to be leaders. So basically what I'm saying is when we go beyond our personal worries and think about the legacy and the way we want to change the world, that's when we become, we become leaders. And – It doesn't matter if people are following us yet. It doesn't matter if we're making a statement that works yet. It doesn't matter if we figured out how to say it. I'm actually listening to my answer here and realizing I didn't really say it exactly right, but screw it. It's not about when you're perfect. There's certain things in life where you have to actually get permission. I remember I lived in L.A. A lot of my friends needed to have that SAG membership. They wanted to be in the Screen Actors Guild because that's when they were really actors, you know? There's no SAG, thankfully, for business. There's no SAG, thankfully, for leadership. You just kind of you do it, and eventually people start to follow you. I had Seth Godin on, and I asked him about this, this idea of leadership and tribes, and I said, what if nobody's there to listen, you know? What if you're, no one's there to follow yet? And he said, you know, there was – he said, I just heard a story of when Barack Obama and this photographer were in a car by themselves and he wasn't being hounded by anyone and no one was flooding him and no one was trying to get his attention. He was just a guy. And he was starting a movement and all leaders start that way with nobody paying attention. And eventually, you keep pounding it and people will pay attention and people will come out and people will, will follow. Once you say, hey, it's not just about me and my personal worries, but it's about something bigger and you start to pursue it and you start to help others get there, you become a leader. I know you've interviewed a lot of people. Um, are there certain characteristics or qualities that, you, that you've, you've noticed about their leadership style? Are there different kinds of leadership styles that maybe you know, work equally as well? Uh, tell us a little bit about your observations in that area. All over the place. One of the great things is we do start to think that all business people are like are high energy. And then you talk to someone who's low energy and you realize he's still successful. We tend to think that all business people are goal setters. And then we talk to one person who just kind of um, – the founder of Anantech was on. And I said – I asked him about this idea of goal setting and where he wanted to be. And did he know he was going to build this company that was going to do millions of dollars just evaluating technology that he loved? And he said, no, I just love it, evaluating technology and putting it out there. Um, and there's some people like him and then there's some people like I think it was the founder of Slice Host who on his phone had a picture of the car that he wanted to buy next and that's the kind of goal setting mentality that he has. I, I hope I'm not wrong with that, with that uh, example. But the po- big point is that you see all kinds of people and you realize there's no one way to do it. Let the books tell you that there's one way to do it and that the author figured it out. Let the speakers on stage at conferences uh, and seminars tell you they figured it all out. There isn't one way. I know it because I've talked to hundreds of entrepreneurs 
it seems sometimes like each one of them took a different path and has a different take on life and they succeeded. Great, great. Um, tell us a, a little bit about some of the mistakes that uh, maybe you've, you've made in running your businesses. How, how did you fix them and what's you know, one of the biggest lessons you've learned from a, from a mistake that you've made? I remember there was one interview that I did with a person where I asked him, what's a channel mean? He was talking about sales channels and I said, could you define channel? I thought in that minute, oh my goodness, this is awful. I'm terrible. I don't even know what a sales channel is. I I can't believe I even asked him. I know what a sales channel is. Why did I even ask him that? I'm terrible. And I never want to do another interview again. The next day, I had one scheduled. I got up. I did it. I did much better. And the day after that, I did much better still. The idea of doing it every day means that you can't run away when you're insecure. The idea of getting up and every day producing means that when you fail, you don't get an out, but you have an opportunity instantly to recover. You don't get to forget about what you did wrong. You have to say, how do I fix it tomorrow? And that's what I learned that it's important to me to be on a consistent schedule of doing things over and over so that I can learn and fix them quickly. And and I did that everywhere. Like even when I was dating, people said – I I say – when I was dating, I would do it six days a week, make sure that I took one day to just be on my own so that I wouldn't, so that I would have some me time. But six days a week, I'd go out. And some people would have said, why not, you know, go out only every Friday or every Friday and Saturday night and then the rest of the week do something else? Why'd you have to stop working to focus on going to California and just hanging out and dating? And I said, look, I want to be able to go and approach a woman and try to say something and have it fail. And then not run away from that or hope that the next week I remember not to say things the way that I did, but pick up where I left off later in the evening and then later in the week the next day and so on and so on. And that's the way I feel you learn. You just push yourself to keep doing that over and over. And um, when I was researching Neil Strauss, the author of the book The Game, I read about how he was – how he went from being a schlub to being a guy who can – Get who can date, who can approach a woman and 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 get her to say yes to a date, and then if later on in the book you got her to say yes to a whole lot more. <laughs> he did the same thing. He was focused on it over and over um, by going by putting himself in a situation where every day he can do it. There's something about doing it daily. I'll give you one other example. When I interviewed Hugh McLeod, I walked into the interview saying, "Why does Hugh draw on the backs of business cards? Why not on a canvas the way other artists do?" Why not, if he's going to be eccentric, why not pick the backs of tissue boxes and draw on those? Why does it have to be business cards? And what I discovered was he did it because with a canvas, he had to go out of his way to get in a studio and paint and have himself in the right frame of mind. And it takes a long time to walk there and a long time to get present and maybe a long time to walk back home. And it's a thing. Back of tissue boxes, who knows how often he's going to find a tissue box to, to draw on the back of. But business cards he could do everywhere and all the time. And so if you and he had a meeting and you were a little bit later, he happened to be a little early to the meeting, he'd whip out some business cards and he'd just draw on the back of them. And if he had some extra time on the way home, he might just in the commute just draw on the back of business cards. And that constant practice got him better and better and better and better. Today we look at his drawings and they look so simple that it feels like almost a kid can do it. But, man, I could tell you, if I sat here and I tried to do it, there's no way I could do it. There's no way I could come up with the shapes that he comes up with, the designs he comes up with, or the clever lines that he attaches to them. 
And that comes from just constant practice. And if you put yourself in a position to constantly practice, you're just going to get better and you're going to shock people and they're going to think it comes naturally to you because you have some kind of superpower. But you, you, you will know that's what it is. Absolutely. Great, great. Um, I know recently you, you've been doing a series on, you know, sort of failures in business or mistakes that people have made. Um, yep. T- tell us a little bit about, do, do you think that that maybe, I, I know that failure is kind of a, a big buzzword right now. You know, we, we live to fail, some people say, things like that. Uh, what is your take on that? Do you think uh, it's proper to have failure as sort of this high-focused kind of thing? Uh, should people be more focused on success? W- what is your take on sort of the recent buzz of, of failure in business? I didn't even realize there was a buzz around it. I thought we were still afraid to talk about our failures. It's pretty (laughs) hard to talk about your failure. But I think it's important for us to respect and to honor the people who failed and to learn from them. You know, too often we think, what was it? I remember I took a law class in high school. And the teacher who was a lawyer said, you know, most people expect that women jurors will be better for uh, rape victims because they'll identify with the women victims. But it's not true. What often happens, she said, is women will see the rape victim and say, she must have done something wrong. It's not like us who are vulnerable here. She must have done something wrong. And they say that as a way of distancing themselves from their vulnerability, of distancing themselves from the possibility happening to them. And they say that's her doing something wrong. I think we do the same thing in business. We take a look at businesses that failed and we say, ha, he is a bad entrepreneur. He did something wrong. The reason that he failed is because he is different. He doesn't want it the same way we want it. He doesn't stick with it the same way. He doesn't set goals the same way, whatever it is that we do. If we sit and we talk to people who run failed businesses, we start to realize they're not a whole other breed of person. There's something that they did that, that we're doing too. And if, we, if we're not failing as a result of it, we can certainly improve by learning it and by, by understanding it and identifying with it and changing as a result of it. So I interviewed a guy who um, started out selling pills I think it was pills. We started, he wanted to – no, I know what it was. He started selling health food online and then he saw that with every new product he, he sold, he had another reason for people to find him on Google. It was great for search engine optimization. So he added more products and he realized that some producers, some manufacturers would give him uh, marketing if, if he sold their stuff. So he said, OK, free marketing. I better sell their stuff. And then he realized that, that – that you don't have to just sell human products. You can also sell dog products. And then he realized you can also sell Viagra. And before long, he was selling Viagra for dogs on his site. I mean, everything. <laughs> story sticks with me so much because, you know, he, he told it so openly. At the time, I think I was only doing interviews. It would have been easy for me to blow it off and say, look, this guy is just clearly carried away. I'm only doing interviews. I'm great. I'm smart. I'm better than he is. But I really internalized it and I and from time to time I catch myself making mistakes and remembering his story, making mistakes like people will offer to fly me all over the world to give speeches. And I want to say yes because I want to fly to all these places. People will offer me all kinds of free stuff to talk about it. They'll offer me – I get all these great offers. So easy to say yes to all of them. And frankly, I probably have said yes to speaking opportunities that I should have said no to. I've got to focus on just the things that are important to me. And then when there's something that I want to do, I have to add that and be as intense about it as I am about interviewing so I could do well at it and, uh, and improve. 
Anyway, I've learned to say no. I've learned to keep things simple. I've become a better interviewer because I don't do interviews and I also do um, uh, a stand-up comedy show and I also do a this and a that and, and a write and I'm not selling myself as a writer in, a, in addition to it. Mm-hmm. A few things that I do really well. Anyway, all that, all I'm, what I'm trying to say is so much to learn from these failed businesses. We can't just put them aside. I don't think we give them enough respect. I don't think we listen enough to them. And I think too many entrepreneurs are too embarrassed of their failures to talk. We need to listen to them. Great, great. Um, can you tell we us a little bit? to talk. Absolutely. And, and can you tell us a little bit about maybe um, defining one's vision? Um, I know that can take time, and maybe that's how some of these mistakes happen and help you define your vision. Um, are you very you know, purposeful about defining your vision in business? Do you think that that is a, a critical factor in, in one's success? Tell us about that. I think... I think I do a pretty good job defining my vision because so many people will talk to me about it. Like they'll remember that I said it somewhere when I won't even remember that I've been public about it. And um, I do think though that I can do an even better job defining my vision. And the way that I got here was just being honest about what I believed. And it's really hard to do that. It's hard to say, I, I want to create what Dale Carnegie created for me. I want to create what Malcolm Forbes created for me. It's hard to say that because then you start to feel like, well, the world's going to judge you and say, well, you think you're Malcolm Forbes? You think you're Dale Carnegie? You know, um, Or you think you're, re- or I might say to myself, you think you're really going to stick with that one thing? You said it out loud, now you're kind of stuck. What are you doing <laughs> to yourself? But every time I've done that, I felt really at peace with myself. I felt a little bit of, a little bit of vulnerability, sometimes a lot, but Mostly I felt like this is who I want to be and this feels great. And if I fail at this, at least I failed being myself. And then I hear other people say, this connects with me. And and they remember that vision because I wasn't too much of a wuss to articulate it. Great. So what I'm saying is there's certain things inside of us that we know that we want to say that we stand for and we have to feel comfortable saying them and we have to feel comfortable adjusting a little bit and we have to feel a little bit vulnerable in the process. Great, great. Um, What advice can you offer to anyone who's thinking about starting their own business? To start it small and to suck a lot at first. You know, the big reason that we don't get started and the reason that we fail and even successful companies fail is that we look for perfection one of the companies in the fail series was a guy who was running a business as part of grasshopper group grasshopper group is one of the most successful bootstrap startup operations on the internet they also happen to be a sponsor of mine but they i i found them when i interviewed them and i discovered how they did this phone system and they were insanely successful and so on and then they wanted to launch a side business and they built it and they built it and they built it and they didn't launch it. And I asked why. I said, it didn't feel right. It didn't feel perfect. didn't feel good. We wanted to get it right. So they scrapped it and they launched a second version. And I asked them, did you show that to everybody? And they said, well, we were a little too intimidated to show it to people or a little too hesitant, I should say, to show it to people throughout. And we didn't. And then I asked them, is part of the problem that there's so much expectations from this company that's done so well that teaches others how to build businesses that you might have felt a little at risk if you put out something bad and he said yeah and I said if you could do it again is that something that you do differently I and that was one of his takeaways that you just do it just launch the bad stuff and you know that you can improve uh, in public I would launch bad and improve in public 
Great, great, great. Um, let's see here. Is there are there any other topics here or anything that you know we didn't cover that maybe you want to uh, have a say on? Or yeah, I'd like, like to get personal with you. Here's my suggestion. Mm-hmm. Don't edit me. Don't edit this interview. Put a put an intro that you and I will record right here at the end of the interview. Let's go vulnerable. Let's go raw. Let's let people just listen to the whole thing. And I was maybe a little bit rough, and then I caught my 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 momentum at some point, and even let them see that I at times went too long with my answers. But go raw. Make it just quick and easy for yourself. How do you feel about doing that? Well, that I makes, know you edit. I know you want your audience to have a polished, good production. What do you feel? That makes me a little bit uh, nervous, uh, Andrew. But I think you know, in the in the spirit of honesty and and the importance of being honest, I think with yourself and and in business, I think that's really important. So let's do it. Definitely. Okay, you want to record the intro right now, so you don't even have to stare at the at the monitor trying to come up with the words. <laughs> no, that's you know that's rough to come up with uh, with the with an intro is so tough. It's very tough. I usually uh, write it out first and whatnot. But before we get to the intro that we'll put at the beginning, um, first tell us how people can find you and Mixergy. Best way to find me is to go to M-I-X-E-R-G-Y, M-I-X-E-R-G-Y dot com. They'll find me. Great, great, great. If they're they're ambitious entrepreneurs, they don't even have to write that down. Forget about your pencil. You'll find me. You'll see me. (laughs) Very good, very good. All right, so here's my shot at the uh, I love it. This is great. And leave it even in the end here. Let people see how we work through this. All right, fair enough, fair enough. So um, let's see here. Welcome to The Independent Entrepreneur, available online at www.indiebizshow.com. My name is Sean Salisbury, and today we're talking with Andrew Warner, founder of Mixergy, an online interview site where he interviews probably thousands of entrepreneurs about their business. We're kind of doing a a, a turn-the-tables sort of interview, and we're going to get into his passion for the upstart. And uh, Andrew, thank you for joining me today. And we're going to jump uh, right into our first question about, uh, about your first job. What was your first meaningful job, and how would it influence your future career? All right, and that's where we'll cut it, right there. That is great. That I, I don't think I could have done it. One take, no edits. That's great. I All love right. It. All right, good. All Guys, right. give Sean feedback on whether, uh, whether this was the way to go or not. Tell us if this is too raw for you or if you love it. Give us any feedback. Sean, where can they find you to give you feedback? Let's do that. Let's give it to them at the end. I want them to keep reaching out to you. I say this too. Never, never, never just allow yourself to be in the audience of life. There, I, you don't just want to watch this stuff like it's a TV show, like it's American Idol. American Idol, you're not supposed to contact the person on the screen because otherwise you'd be a kook. In business, if you're watching something like this, you want to just send Sean a quick email and say, hey, Sean, caught, caught the show, great. You want to do it to establish relationships, to go from being in the audience to being a participant. And not that something's going to happen right away, but man, when you do that, you're going to start to see that things do happen for you with great people. When you come to contact with someone's with someone's work, you send them a quick email and you say, hey, thanks, I saw it. Do the same thing with Sean. If you see me, do it. If you see me interview someone, you do it. If you see me, if you see uh, Jimmy Wales, founder of Wikipedia, on, you find a way to send him a note and you say, hey, I just heard you on uh, whatever, on Sean's program, loved it, move on. You just do those little things. You want to interact with people. You'll see good stuff will happen to you when you talk to great people. And Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that'd be great. Start with me. Start with Sean. Do it. (laughs) Sean's great. 
Great. Thanks so much, Andrew. And you can visit us online at www.indiebizshow.com. And you can reach me at mail at indiebizshow.com. And I promise to return an email if you send one. Dude, thank you all. Thank you. All right, awesome. Now. Thank you for listening to The Independent Entrepreneur. The show's theme song, Tommy in the Morning, is by Pete Huttlinger and used with his permission. All other content on this show is copyright 2011 by Sean Salisbury. We hope you've enjoyed this interview. For more information and to listen to other interviews, please visit www.indiebizshow.com. That's www.indybizshow.com. You see me and me to see if I'm boring and not. <laughs> Fair enough. There we go, bud. Oh, this is surreal. I see your uh, I see your interviews all the time, just like that. So it's crazy. Hey, Sean, I'm recording this part of the conversation, too. Can you say your name and website just so I have it on the recording? Yeah, sure. Uh, my name is Sean Salisbury from The Independent Entrepreneur, which is IndieBizShow.com. Cool. All right. So now I've got it. If you need it, I'll have it uh, for always. Great, great. So this or, is... Um, <laughs> So uh, this is kind of a, a, a turn the tables kind of thing, obviously, uh, which, right. which I'm excited about. Um, now, my show is uh, a, it, it's not a live to tape uh, thing, so I edit it afterwards, cut out ums and ahs. Oh, no, man. You must have a ton of work to do. <laughs> I know you talk about this in some of your, uh, some of your uh, advice and whatnot, but, um, but uh, you know, I, I interview a lot of sort of like uh, small business owners as well, and that sort of puts them at ease that, you know, if they mess up, they're not going to be... Uh, and, and oh, I'm sure it's great for them, yeah. but man, it must drive you nuts. All right, that's your headache. You have to deal with your own <laughs> headaches. God knows I have to deal with my own personal headaches. I'm not uh, I, I'm not telling you that you've got to do things my way. Fair enough, fair enough. So, oh, um, man, it's me in pain, my friend. No, I love it. I love it. It's uh, Everybody likes the show at the end of the day, and uh, it's as much for my benefit as, as it is for them. So, 